when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy to open up your words and to hear your voice speaking to us. We don't take it for granted this morning that you are the God who speaks and you speak to us for our good. You desire that we would trust you at all times and in all places and in all circumstances. And so here we are, your people, and we come this morning asking that you would give us a heart of faith that we might learn to trust you. Trust you when times are good, even more trust you when times are difficult. Father, we know that your word is good, for you have confirmed it with your son. You've sent the word of God into this world, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we have great reason to hope in you. For Christ has come and he has shed his blood for sinners and he has rose again and he is seated at your right hand. And so we have reason to hope today because our Savior has come for us. And so we ask this morning as we look into Psalm 34, this salvation story of David, that you would help us trust in you. So would you help us this morning? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So I want to start off this salvation story with a question. Can I trust in God? Can I trust in God? That might seem like a really easy question to you this morning. The, the sun is shining on your face. The, the wind is at your back. Everything in life seems to be going well. It's all right and good. And you say, of course, of course, I can trust in God. God is so good, manifestly so. However, when the circumstances of life change and the, the sun isn't shining on your face anymore, instead the, the wind is at your face, sharply in your face, and all the circumstances of life have changed, it isn't easy to say that anymore. It isn't easy to trust in God. When there are many afflictions and when your heart is broken and your spirit is crushed, when your enemies oppose you and it seems that your life is a dead end and you are at the very end of it, it gets really hard to say, I trust in God. Well, this psalm, Psalm 34, is for people who are struggling to trust in God. In this psalm, David tells his salvation story to, to us, and he, he tells his salvation story to us for a reason, that we might be able to speak to those who are struggling to trust in God. David wants to do a work among the people of God. He wants to stir them up for the Lord. And so if you're struggling to trust God today, the wind's in your face, life is a struggle. David's words are for you, and specifically your faith in God. So let's look at the psalm together. 
The ground floor of Psalm 34 is David's salvation story, his encounter with the Lord. And David's salvation story is bare bones. It's stripped down to the studs. David doesn't need tens of pages to describe his salvation story. He doesn't need a big book to tell us all that God has done for him. In two very short verses, David tells us his salvation story. Verse 4, he says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And in verse 6, David tells his salvation story again, and it's pretty much the same, just with a little bit of change. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So there's David's salvation story, two verses, verse 4, verse 6. And as we think about these two verses, putting them together in our minds, discerning a plot line from them, there's three parts to the plot line. First, There is a need in David's life. In verse 4, David tells us that he was afraid. In verse 6, David tells us that there were many troubles in his life. And if you look at the superscript of the psalm, we get a sense of what was going on in David's life. This was from the, the time in David's life when David fled from the court of Saul and took refuge among the Philistines. And that move from Saul to the Philistines did not help David out, but it increased his fear and his troubles because he was not welcome there. So David is in fear and has troubles. Second, we discern that there is a a movement towards the Lord. In the midst of all of his fear, in the midst of all of his trouble, David doesn't forget about the Lord or forsake the Lord or put the Lord behind him. Rather, he does this. He seeks the face of the Lord. And specifically, he, he sought the face of the Lord through prayer. He says, this poor man cried to the Lord. And the third, there's a response from the Lord. David is in fear and in trouble, and he seeks the face of the Lord, and David's cry doesn't go to voicemail. It doesn't go to call waiting. The Lord hears David and answers David, and this meant salvation for David. The Lord came and delivered David from all of his fears and from all of his troubles. And so as we think about these two verses, verse 4, verse 6, we can summarize David's story with three short, simple sentences. David was in need, desperate need. David sought God, and God saved David. So there's David's salvation story. Now, David tells us this story for a reason. He wants to use his story to deal with our hearts. And so there's the ground floor of Psalm 34. And what David does is he starts to to build on the ground floor. And from his personal dealings with God, David reaches out to us and he gives us two commands in light of what God has done for him. So he's speaking. Are you struggling with God? Are you struggling to trust in God today? Here's what you need to do. First, verse 8, command, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You might have heard that verse before, but have you thought about it? That is a very strange verse. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I can taste an orange. I can taste a candy bar. I can taste ham. But how do I taste and see that the Lord is good? How do I taste God? What is David talking about here? Well, we need to think hard about David's word in verse 8, this command to taste and see that the Lord is good. David chose this word taste for a reason. Taste is a word of experience. Specifically, taste is how we experience food. 
And most importantly, taste is the, the highest, most intimate level we can experience food. Just think about it. You can look at food. That's an experience of it. Maybe you had a big meal last night. You could see it. You were experiencing it. You can also touch food. You can pick it up and feel it. That's an experience of food. But really, the highest level of experiencing food is what? When you take that food and you, you eat it, when you taste it, you haven't fully experienced food as it's meant to be experienced as, until you taste it. Just think about an orange. When you look at an orange, you can see its color. When you pick up an orange, you can feel it. It's got that peel, feel to it. But it's not until you peel that orange and put it in your mouth and taste it, you've experienced an orange as it's meant to be fully and truly experienced. So do you see, do you see what David is doing in, in verse 8? He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is commanding us to experience God as he is meant to be experienced at his highest, most intimate level. We ask, well, what does that look like to do that with the Lord? How is God meant to be experienced? How, how am I to taste God as he is meant to be tasted? Well, just let me help you for a moment. In Scripture, God is described as a shield. In Genesis 15, 1, the Lord comes to Abram and he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And we ask, well, how do I taste God? Well, what do you use a shield for? You use a shield and attack. The enemy is coming at you. And so if we were to taste God, according to Genesis 15, 1, we pick up the shield and we, we hide behind the shield. Or Proverbs 18, 10 helps us out. Proverbs 18, 10 tells us that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Well, how do you taste God? Well, when trouble comes, what do you do? You, you flee to the strong tower and you, you take refuge there. Proverbs 18.10 says this, the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Throughout the Psalter, God is described as a, a rock, a sturdy rock. So how do you taste God? Well, when all the earth is giving way, when there's trouble everywhere, what do you do? You take your two feet and you plant them on the rock that is God. You say as David, Psalm 61 verse 2, Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God is always called the Savior and Redeemer of Israel. And we ask, well, how do I taste God? Well, when you're in trouble, when you're in trouble, what do you do? Well, you turn to the Lord and you cry out to him. Psalm 35, verse 3, David models this to us. He is in the midst of trouble and he speaks to God. And this is what he says to God. Say to my soul, O God, I am your salvation. I am your salvation. And what David does here is he speaks as a counselor to our souls, an experienced one. From his own dealings with the Lord, he knows how trust and trust grows and increases in the Christian life. And we learn this from David as he commands us, trust grows through trust. Trust grows through trusting God. It is only experiencing God as he is meant to be experienced that we learn to trust God. He is a shield in the midst of attack. He's a strong tower that we can run to, a sturdy rock that we can stand on, a savior we can call on when trouble surrounds us. And as we do that, going to the Lord, we learn to trust him. And what David is telling us is you can never learn to trust the Lord by simply relying on the testimony of someone else. That's not how trust works. David is telling us you actually have to step out and hazard yourself on God. 
You actually have to step out and put your weight upon God, and that's the only way to learn how to trust God. So David commands us. He is saying, taste and see that the Lord is good. David is saying, I experienced the salvation of God, and now what I want you to do is try that salvation story on for yourself. I was afraid and in fear. I cried out to the Lord. He saved me. Do the very same thing. That's what I'm telling you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So that's David's first command. And there's a second command. So the first command sounds a bit strange to our ears, taste and see. The second command can easily be confused. David says this in verse 9. Fear the Lord, you his saints. Fear the Lord. The word fear can be used in many different ways. You can watch a a scary movie and there's this spooky fear. You get the heebie-jeebies. You watch a movie and you don't want to shut the lights off. and You really don't even want to go to bed. And there is the panic fear. You go for a walk and you, you meet a bear on your walk and then panic just pulses through your body. Your, your, your breathing is short and shallow. You're, you're sweating. Your thoughts are frantic. But that's not what David has in mind when he talks about this in verse 9. He has something else to say. It's not being spooked. It's not being panicked. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, David tells us he's a good teacher. Look at verses 11 through 14. David says this, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Our ears are listening now. Fear the Lord. I need to do that. How do I do it? David says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So when David commands us to fear the Lord in this text, he doesn't want us cowering in the corner of our room, scared. He doesn't want us panicked as if we have met a bear in the road. Rather, he wants us to think carefully and practically about our lives. According to David, to fear the Lord is to do what? Is to keep a close watch over your mouth, refusing to speak evil and lies. To fear the Lord, according to David, is to do what? It's to to keep a careful watch on your feet that you might always walk in the way of righteousness, refusing always the path of evil. To fear the Lord is to conduct your relationships in peace, always seeking it, diligently pursuing it. That's what fear the Lord is for David. And as we listen to David explain the fear of the Lord in verses 11 through 14, that's, that's good. It gives us a lot to think about. Am I fearing the Lord? Is that how I live my life? Is that how I I speak with my mouth? Is that how I walk with my feet? Is that how I conduct my relationships? But we need to think here. We need to ask, well, what does any of this have to do with trusting God? What does fearing God have to do with trusting God? What do our mouths and our feet and our relationships have to do with trusting the Lord? Well, it might seem that David has gone into left field and he started moralizing with us. He isn't. And just like the first command, David with this second command, fear the Lord, is helping those who struggle to trust in God. So here's a question. Why is it that we often have such a hard time trusting God? Why do we often have a hard time trusting God? Well, the answer is this. Our knowledge and understanding of God is weak and speculative. 
Our knowledge of God isn't lively or near or heavy. What we know about God doesn't press upon us. It doesn't exert this practical moment-by-moment force upon us. And David, in giving us this command, fear the Lord, is calling us to know God differently. He desires that the knowledge of God would be so near to us, so present that it would impact every word that comes out of our mouths. He desires that the knowledge of God would be so heavy upon our shoulders that it would influence every moral step we take in our lives. He desires that the knowledge of God would be so lively in our imaginations and our lives, it would affect every relationship and how we conduct ourselves with others. Above all, David comes in this command. He says, fear the Lord. And he's saying, don't forget the Lord in the big things and in the small things. Fear the Lord. Know him truly as he truly is. So David says, fear the Lord. But again, we ask, well, I'm starting to see a a bit here, but I I need more help. How how does this connect to, to trusting God? Well, think about it like this. If you live like an atheist, if you make decisions like an atheist, if you talk like an atheist, if you conduct your relationships like an atheist, you're going to trust God like an atheist. If God is far away from how you live your life and speak with your mouth and make decisions and conduct your relationships, you will never trust him. And so hear this. This is what David wants for us. If you are to live a life of trust in God, you must then carefully cultivate a knowledge of God that actually changes the way you live your life. A God who is near is a God who is trusted. That's the only kind of God you can trust. But a distant God, a God who is far away, making no impact in your life, not, not exerting his force on your life, you will never trust that God because that God is far away. He's not in your mind. And so David comes to us instructing us, saying, if you want to trust in God, you must start here. You must fear the Lord. And so David, in his kindness, after experiencing the salvation of God, comes to us with two commands. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear the Lord. But David isn't done yet. He's got the the ground floor built with his salvation story. He is building. He has given us these commands. And now he, he keeps building. And he keeps building because he knows that our souls need more. And he knows that our souls need more because in the midst of dark circumstances, trust is hard. And so David says this, here, I will give you the sweet promises of God. And David doesn't want us guessing in the darkness. He doesn't want us walking around in the darkness, stubbing our toes. He wants us to know exactly what will happen if we obey his commands. If you fear the Lord, if you taste and see that the Lord is good, if you trust in God, these words will govern your life. David says this, verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Verse 7 says this, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 9 says this, Those who lack, those who fear him have no lack. Verse 10, Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Verse 15, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verses 19 and 20, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
David is saying again and again and again in the psalm, don't walk in the dark. Here's the promises of God. You trust in him, these words govern your life. And those are sweet promises. Better yet, those are big promises. Did you hear him? None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Those who fear him have no lack. And as you're sitting here today, there's some of you who hear those promises and you say, yes and amen, that's exactly what I needed to hear today. And God has strengthened you with those words and you're ready to soldier on and carry on in the Christian life. But others of you hear those words and you're not strengthened by them. You hear those words and instead of being strengthened, what do they do? They prompt doubts and questions in your head and they prompt doubts and questions in your head because why? They don't fit your life. We have to take God's word seriously. David says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. But you say this, my life doesn't fit that verse. I'm lacking everything in my life. And I'm seeking the Lord. David says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And you say, that doesn't fit my life. I've got troubles and I'm crying to the Lord and I don't have any salvation right now. And so what do you do when the promises of God don't fit? You're laboring, trying to obey the commands, trusting in God, but you don't see the salvation of God. Is there an answer? Well, I think the only place to find an answer is to go to a very dark place, the darkest place in all of human history. The only place to get an answer to that kind of question is the death of Jesus. So I want to take you to the cross and give you an answer. So just take in the scene with me for a moment. We go to the cross outside of the city gates of Jerusalem, and there we find Jesus, the Lord of life, the Son of God, and he is dead. He's abandoned by his friends. He's been betrayed by a disciple. He's been beaten by soldiers, mocked by crowds, falsely accused in trial, condemned both by the Jews and the Romans, crucified and killed. There he is before your eyes, dead. Now think about Psalm 34. Nothing about Psalm 34 fits this scene. Look at Jesus' face. It isn't radiant. It's dead. There is no life in his face. Consider the surroundings of Jesus. The angel of the Lord is not encamped around him. Instead, he is surrounded by what? He's surrounded by all of his enemies. What does Jesus have at this moment? He has nothing. He lacks everything. He has been stripped down to nothing. What's happened to the Lord Jesus? He cried out to the Lord, but the Lord did not hear him. There was no help. There was no salvation in that moment. Jesus was innocent. And what? We find him condemned. And we ask, as we take in this scene, what happened to the promises of God? What happened to Psalm 34? All the details of the crucifixion of Jesus shout in our face, God is not faithful. God is not faithful. He didn't keep his promises. Here is the Son of God destroyed. But is that true? Is Psalm 34 true? Is it true for Jesus? 
Can we bank on that? Can we bank on it in this darkest moment? Well, if you look at John chapter 19, verses 31 through 36, you find something very interesting. John recounts for us the end of the crucifixion. And he says this. Now, I want you to listen and listen for Psalm 34 in these words. John 19, verses 31 through 36. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Did you hear it? What does John do? He takes us to the darkest moment in human history. He's looking at it. He's taking it all in. And what does he do? He goes to Psalm 34 and he says, I see that verse taking place in Jesus' life. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them broken. But what does this mean? Even though it doesn't seem like it, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though it doesn't sound like it, John is letting us know that the promise of Psalm 34 is true and it is controlling Jesus' life even when it doesn't seem like it. And as John looks at this scene and he sees that the bones of Jesus are unbroken, he's reminded of the promises of Psalm 34 and he is saying to everyone, even in this darkest moment, God's promises were true. And here's John, and he takes Psalm 34, and without hesitation, he says, that's Jesus. It's taking place in Jesus' life. And we ask, was John right in doing that? Well, you just have to wait for three more days, and the proof is in the pudding. For three short days later, God took action for the sake of his son. He raised him from the dead. And the Lord Jesus could say with a greater appreciation than David could ever could, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. And this comes for us. Are you doubting today? Are you questioning? Are you struggling to trust in God? Well, hear this. As we connect Psalm 34 to the story of Jesus, even though it doesn't feel like it, even though it doesn't seem like it, even though it doesn't sound like it, God is yet faithful. You cannot, God judge, you cannot judge God's faithfulness by the present circumstances of your life. Just look at the story of Jesus. God did not abandon his son, but saved him. Even in the darkest moment, there we see signs of God's faithfulness. Not one of his bones were broken. And you can expect the same thing in your life. You have darkness, you have troubles, you have lack, and they may be there for a week or for a month or for a year or for a season or for a decade or for the rest of your life. But you can count on this. They will not continue forever. And that's how the gospel story helps us. In the midst of the darkness, we remember that not one of Jesus' bones were broken, that even in death, in this dark moment, that the promises of Psalm 34 remained valid and controlling, and hear this, brother, sister, the promises of Psalm 34 are valid and controlling 
for you. They are. You can bank on it. And so Psalm 34 is for people who are struggling to trust in God. For people who are struggling to trust in God. Are you struggling to trust today? Well, then listen to David's story. He, he tells it to you. I had trouble. I had fears. I sought the Lord. He saved me. And David comes to us and he, he commands us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try my story on for yourself. And he says, fear the Lord. Know the Lord, know him truly, so much so that he affects every part of your life, so much so that you can actually trust him because he is near to you. And then when it's dark, when it's really dark, remember the story of Jesus. God's faithfulness extends to the grave. You can trust that. You can trust in God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for this great text. We need it for we often struggle to trust you. Our circumstances, our troubles, they disturb us and they throw us to the ground. But we pray now and ask that through your word, through this psalm, that you would turn our hearts to you and that we could trust you. We could trust you in the good times and in the really difficult times. Would we be a people who taste and see that the Lord is good? Would we be a people who fear the Lord and walk in that knowledge? Would you do this for us, we pray. Amen.